Welcome to the Weekend Warriors podcast, the weekly podcast about foreign affairs, where we like to discuss, you know, the other important stuff that's going on in the world. I'm Essie Cup. I'm going to read a list of names for you. Adelaide Stevenson, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, Madeline Albright, Richard Holbrook, and Heather Nauert? Maybe. There are credible reports that President Trump has made an offer to current State Department spokeswoman, former Fox and Friends host Heather Nauert. President seemed to give himself a little more room over the past few days for the new U.N. ambassador post. Uh, Last week, before leaving for his Paris trip, he said he was considering Heather for the post, but others as well, and that he has plenty of time to make that decision. Now his decision is supposed to come before the current U.N. ambassador, Nikki Haley, leaves at the end of the year. She announced she was leaving uh, just a few weeks ago, of course. That's six weeks from now, though. So at a time when North Korea seems to be hiding dozens of missile bases, when Russia and China are growing their military capabilities and trying to expand diplomatic dominance, and when there are growing tensions with Saudi Arabia and a humanitarian disaster in Yemen, not to mention the countless refugee crises across the globe. We have six weeks to take a good look at Heather Nauert, who, in the words of one foreign policy report, is a capable PR person. Now, that's not a tremendous amount of time to vet whether or not she or anyone else also has the chops to navigate and hopefully neutralize all those geopolitical calamities on a global scale. It's a big job. Uh, Joining me for this discussion is Tom Nichols. He's professor at the U.S. Naval War College, Harvard Extension School. He is also the author of The Death of Expertise. Uh, Tom Nichols, you're you're kind of the perfect person to have this discussion with me. So (laughs) I'm so glad you're you're here. Um, Let's start specifically with with Heather Nauer, and then we'll talk more more globally about about the U.N., She has, you know, arguably shown herself to be fairly capable at her position at the State Department as a spokesperson. I have watched a number of her press conferences. I have sat in on a number of her press calls. But look, that's a far that's a far cry from like staring down the Russian delegation, you know, over North Korean sanctions or or nuclear treaties, Um, you know, U.N. observers accurately, say she'd be the least qualified U.S. ambassador to the U.N. ever. What are your thoughts on a potential, you know, foxification, further foxification of Trump's foreign policy at the U.N.? Well, first, I have to agree, probably the least qualified uh, ever, which is no slam on Ms. Nauert, because, you know, she's obviously pretty good at what she does uh, otherwise as a spokesperson. But, you know, this is the problem of uh, being good at one thing doesn't mean that you're good at everything just because you happen to have to be on TV now and then. Mm. Um, I should also add, of course, that I don't represent the views of the Navy or the government on this. Okay. Um, and I think, you know, this is a classic death of expertise moment to say, mm-hmm. well, you know, she's well-spoken. She appears well on television. She did a good job as spokesman. And really, how hard can it be to be the U.N. ambassador? You go to some meetings, you're on television, you go to some cocktail parties, and it's over. And, of course, that's not even remotely close to what the job of the U.N. ambassador is. I mean, in 
in a sense, you know, the U.N. ambassador is a cabinet-level person representing the president and the United States, but, but remotely in New York rather than close to where the action is in Washington, which makes it even tougher. That three or 400 miles can really make the difference uh, in terms of having to think on your feet and to be able to, um, you know, do things independently and to carry forward a line. Um, and I, I just I think this is one of those kind of, I would say, mystifying uh, position or choices for a position. But unfortunately, I don't think it's all that mystifying. No. And it seems in particular, um, just going back to something you just said, this idea that if if Trump likes someone, he kind of seem, sees them as, it, you know, uh, movable, mobile. Right. It, the, the expertise is not the thing anchoring them to the job. It's whether he thinks they're good and loyal. So loyal. a perfect example, Mike Pompeo, first at CIA, right. which was a bad fit for a politician, uh, just well, just slides him over to state uh, because, you know, because because he liked him, which which, you know, actually made sense. He has far more qualifications over at state than he did than he did at CIA. But, um, you know, isn't this very much in Trump's kind of uh, employee philosophy? Uh, you know, yeah. you can sort of slide these people around. Yeah, I mean, he, you know, for all the talk of what a, you know, manager he was and running big organizations, the fact is, you know, the president sat on top of a large organization that had his name on it, but other people managed that organization. The president, in that sense, really doesn't have a whole lot of executive experience. Uh, But more than that, I think there is that fatal flaw that loyalty and presentability on television are the two things in order that he seems to value the most. And, you know, people are not modular. Um, You can't simply pull somebody out of one job and switch them to another. Um, It can happen. I mean, we, you know, when we've seen, for example, when in the Reagan administration, when Jim Baker and Don Regan switched jobs, because they were both experienced Washington insiders. They both had the experience to be able to do that. But generally speaking, just saying, well, I like this person, so just find a job for them right. in the administration. You know, well, there's a big difference between being Secretary of the Treasury and, you know, Director of the CIA. I mean, these are all very different jobs. Let's talk specifically about about Trump's fascination with Fox, uh, you know, from John Bolton Larry Kudlow. Uh, there was a time KT McFarland was uh, to work in the administration. And now, you know, Heather Nauert, whom I worked with at Fox. She is lovely. She is smart. She is a capable journalist. Uh, how does that <laughs> repair someone for the rigors of this particular job, uh, U.S. ambassador to the U.N.? Does it? It, it doesn't. And, <laughs> and if you want to be bipartisan about it, yeah. you, could, you could look back and say, uh, Samantha Power, Yes. Uh, you know, a great journalist wrote a brilliant book that I still uh, assign in some of my classes mm. at the Harvard Extension School, um, mm. you know, had uh, just some remarkable chops in terms of, you know, as, a, as an observer of global politics. Yes. But just wasn't real good. I mean, and she gave some great speeches at the U.N., but the fact of the matter is, you know, just wasn't real good at being a U.N. ambassador because that's not a skill set that transfers. Um, some of the other folks you mentioned um, one of the names that was left out, you know, Andrew Young, um, right. who, you know, had a, had great talents as 
um, a community leader, you know, back in the 70s, but yeah. didn't work out so well when Jimmy Carter sent him to New York. Uh, I think the president's fascination with television, to go back to your point, yeah. he, he's very much like his base and like a lot of people in America, where he is fascinated by television. Yeah. And he assumes that if you're good on TV, that you're just good at things, because being good at TV is the hardest thing there is <laughs> in some way. Or, or yeah. that they assume that, you know, if you're, if you're good on TV, how hard could anything else be once you've been on television? And it, it's, um, it's really a kind of scary thing. Uh, because it says that if you're on television, I mean, you know, we can go back uh, before Heather Nauert or John Bolton. I mean, how how did, did Seb Gorka end up in the White House? Right, right. You know, we really had no, and it's nothing personal about Seb Gorka. He just had no business being there. Yeah, yeah. But the president saw him on TV a lot. So I guess, you know, well, he's been on TV. I guess he belongs in the White House, which is, you know, not true. This week on Boss Files, Lando Lake CEO Beth Ford says that despite the coronavirus outbreak, farmers are still working hard to bring food to the shelves. Yeah, there's plenty of food right now, and actually farmers are still working. This is an essential industry as defined by the government, but it was actually as defined by all of us, and we know that. Tune in for the latest in our series of conversations with leaders about how they're coping with all of the uncertainty and the challenges presented by the coronavirus pandemic. the idea that, you know, sometimes these unconventional picks uh, can can work out. Um, you know, Madeleine Albright, for, for example, didn't really have a ton of foreign policy experience uh, uh, per, per se. I mean, she was a specialist in foreign policy, but she didn't have a lot of political or policy experience. Um, you know, Nikki Haley, you could say, obviously formidable as a governor. I, I like her very much personally. Maybe not your first thought uh, for U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. I thought she did a terrific job. She had some really great moments of, of toughness, and I thought she, she sort of steered the U.S. through an often unnavigable, um, you know, gauntlet over, over at a body that can be very distrusting of the U.S. and our interests. So is it possible that, you know, Heather Nauert could actually find her, her footing over there in ways maybe we don't expect? Well, I'm going to let, let me say a few words about all of uh, those predecessors. Yeah. Um, in, uh, this is a strange uh, story, but I actually um, ended up, when I was a graduate student, assisting Madeleine Albright and Jean Kirkpatrick at the same time. Mm, wow. And so I knew them both. Uh, and they both. And Jean didn't have a lot of diplomatic experience either. Uh, no, that's right. right. Uh, she came out of the academic world as well. Yeah. The, uh, Kirkpatrick did. But the thing that made Kirkpatrick and Albright alike was that they drew on a huge depth of prior knowledge yeah. about foreign affairs. Right. And that they, they weren't going to have to learn a lot of things from the ground up. I mean, they were mm -hmm. both uh, in different ways. They were intellectuals. And Albright had actually worked, um, people forget this, but she had worked, she was a protege of Zbigniew Brzezinski and had worked in the Brzezinski, uh, oh, for right. Brzezinski in the Carter White mm -hmm, House. Mm -hmm. So she wasn't coming at this without any chops. Kirkpatrick had a long history, uh, ironically, as a Democrat in Democratic foreign policy circles and had been part of the group that had coalesced to oppose Jimmy Carter's foreign policy. Yeah. So she wasn't just plucked out of academic Obscurity, security right. either. Haley's the interesting case 
And, also, and I think the thing that Haley brought with her were political abilities, that she'd been a governor, she'd had to negotiate dealing with various coalitions. But I'm also going to say Nikki Haley was never tested in a real crisis. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't know how good a U.N. ambassador Nikki Haley would have been, and that's no reflection on her. Right. It just was just the, I think this whole administration, to be honest with you, has been unbelievably lucky so far yeah. uh, that no major crisis has erupted yet. And I mean, it's going to happen. It's just mm. the nature of international politics that people can't control. Um, but I think she brought to the job kind of a moral clarity, even when the administration was morally yeah. cloudy. Which was important. Um, yeah. she, she brought that to, to the job. So I think all three of those women had mm. strengths that, ha- that I just, and maybe I'm being overly harsh, but I just don't see Heather Nauer having the intellectual or the political background to be able to navigate those kinds of waters. Well, and before anyone um, accuses you or I of, of sexism, because I think we we could both run afoul of the idea that, look, in foreign policy circles, there is sexism. There is sexism toward women um, of a certain age and of a certain background. Uh, you know, I, I've seen it. I've seen it uh, firsthand. It happens. Do you think there's any sexism not on your part or, or mine, but in general, of the skeptic- skepticism toward Heather Nauert going over to the U.N., or do you think it's, it really just is based on her lack of experience? Well, since I just spoke very um, positively <laughs> of, other of women, Madeline yeah. <laughs> Albright, Jean Kirkpatrick, and uh, Nikki Haley, I don't think anybody can accuse me of sexism. No, in, but there is case. a sexism and, in foreign policy circles that, oh, but, that exists. Oh, there, there definitely is. Yeah. I mean, as, and, you know, remember, other countries aren't as enlightened as the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, there, there's definitely, it's definitely a tough, uh, tough room. Uh, up in New York. But I, I don't yeah. think that criticizing Heather Nauer is is based in sexism. I mean, if this were um, no, I don't either. the equivalent presenter from Fox, you know, that uh, if this were, I don't know, Greg Jarrett or somebody, you know, who <laughs> Pete presents well. Pardon? <laughs> Pete Exeth. <laughs> yeah, you know, that just presents well and is genial on television and could be a good spokesman, I, I wouldn't be sitting here saying that's a good idea either. Right. Uh, and, I, and I think it's just a matter of, you know, um, I think resume matters. I think experience matters. And I think, again, when you're talking about people like Kirkpatrick or Albright, who were both taken out of academia, having a depth of intellectual ability to be able to, to kind of not have to get briefed up to speed mm. every time you talk to someone is really important. Mm. And I think, you know, now it's record as State Department spokesman, mm-hmm. you know, there have been some gaffes and yeah. there have been some obvious gaps in our knowledge. And I think, you know, that if you're in Washington working at state, that's a more forgiving environment. When mm. you're on your own on the east side at Turtle, you know, Turtle Bay, you know, that's it. You're, you're, you're flying solo up there. Yeah. You're not going to get a lot of room to make mistakes. And, yeah. Uh, to, to Nikki Haley, um, you know, we all remember that that great line she delivered. I don't get confused when uh, folks at the White House tried to throw right. her under the bus for something she said. But let's just talk about the role of U.S. ambassador to the U.N. more generally. I- I'm no fan of the U.N. Most conservatives are deeply skeptical uh, of the U.N. And and f- for good reason. It's been ill-equipped to deal with conflict resolution and, and any number of humanitarian disasters, uh, sometimes farcically. It's notoriously anti-Semitic. Uh, it is, it is, you know, 
not uh, 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 one could one could say not particularly kind to Western interests, certainly not kind <laughs> no. to Israeli interests. Um, certainly not. So so it is do we overblow um, the role, overplay the importance of the role of the U.S. ambassador to a body that to a lot of us should actually be less important? I don't think so, and and I'll, uh, let me just say, I mean, yeah, go ahead. In a few years ago, a few years ago, about ten years ago, I wrote a book where I referred to the UN as one of the most squalid and dysfunctional bureaucracies on earth. Right. Uh, nonetheless, the other thing you have to say about the United Nations is it is the only game in town, mm-hmm. and nothing can speak with the moral force of the Security Council when the Security Council agrees to something. Mm. The, the entire world will go to war on the word of the Security Council, if need be. Mm. And it's happened now, you know, what used to be, we used in the old days, I'm old enough to have been teaching long enough to say, well, it only ever happened once in Korea and then once more in um, Iraq. But it's yeah. actually happened now again in Libya. Um, and so it's rare, but it can happen. And I think the United Nations, you know, I think Americans expect too much of the United Nations mm. because it was, it was designed... To Not solve to all the problems. <laughs> it, was, it was designed to solve all the problems, which was probably well, setting was, expectations no, it was too high to anyway. Prevent, <laughs> it was designed to prevent World War III, or as they thought of it at the time, World War II from happening again. Yeah, right. As Ambassador Henry Cabot Lodge once said, this organization was not meant to take you to heaven. It was to prevent <laughs> you from going to hell. <laughs> right, okay. And so, you know, as long as it stops the world from descending into hell... The United Nations, you know, most days they earn their pay by preventing the world from descending into, you know, a hellish chaos of global war. That's really all they were designed for. Um, And so the U.S. ambassador there has a consistent job to be a force for moral clarity, for the importance of democracy and negotiation, if necessary, for to call together a coalition um, in the name of justice or human rights. But you know, there it's it's a it's an inherently difficult organization, and that's why I actually think the job of UN ambassador, in some ways, it, it, I think maybe the only other diplomatic job that's more difficult is being the Secretary of State yourself, yeah. itself. Sure, sure. Well, just to button this up, um, in the case of some former uh, ambassadors, it's really been a stepping stone to higher positions. Certainly internationally, it's a stepping stone to becoming sort of a foreign minister uh, in, mm-hmm. the, in the cases of other countries. In the case of ours, you know, look at Madeleine Albright, um, former U.N. Ambassador Susan Rice, uh, who all went on to higher level U.S. posts um, in, in their cabinets. Nikki Haley might run for president one day off of both being a governor and the U.S. ambassador to the UN. Is this potentially a stepping stone kind of position for Heather Nauert, if indeed she gets it? Um, I would be surprised by that, and I I don't (laughs) know whether Heather Nauert has political ambitions. Um, The cautionary tale here is to say, yes, that some people like Rice um, and Albright have been elevated. Others, like Kirkpatrick, and I think, you, you know, you talk about sexism, um, I think yeah. whatever our, our, whatever warm feelings we may have about the Reagan administration <laughs> as conservatives, you know, it was a, there, there was a reason she left. Um, yeah. You know, and there, there was a time that she finally decided it was time to go. 
um, Samantha Power is, you know, mm. back at Harvard. Right. Um, so, you know, it can be a step Adlai Stevenson, uh, you know, uh, how fondly we remember President Adlai Stevenson, who never <laughs> right, made it. Right. Uh, so, you know, there, it can be a stepping stone, but it can also be just a way station. And I think um, if, you know, and again, I say this without knowing Heather Nauert and with yeah. no malice intended, but yeah. for me, it would just be if, if Nauert is appointed and is actually confirmed and sent. Um, it's just for me, it'll just be a matter of, you know, kind of waiting for that first disaster to happen, because mm. I think um, she's going to be in way over her head against the Russians and the Chinese and the Syrians and a lot of other bad guys um, for whom being on television doesn't mean squat. Is there someone you would have in mind if you were advising the president or, um, you know, his diplomatic corps? Is there someone you think would be a better, more obvious choice or, or even a less obvious choice? Yeah, that's really hard to say because you always have to take that um, question and matrix that against who'd be willing to do it in this administration. That's right, right, right. And so I'm hesitant to, you know, to sit here and spitball names because um, I think part of the problem is that if you're going to go to, go, going to, go to New York, you really have to have the president 100% behind you. Yeah. Um, and this is part of the problem, I think, that happened to Samantha Power, is that, you know, she had a very forceful view of the world that she expressed at length in a book. Yeah. And, you know, then that New York Times story came out where she was advocating and the president was quoted as saying, enough, Samantha, I've read your book. Well, you know, that's <laughs> fatal right. uh, when that happens. So if you don't have somebody who's totally on the same page with the president, and, and that's going to be hard to do in this administration, but I, I just don't know who the president would pick. And of the people that I think would make a good choice, I don't think any of them would take the job. Right, right. It is that weird Venn diagram when it comes to yeah, staffing of, this you know, president. People that are qualified who would also do it, yep. that Venn diagram, I think for a lot of jobs in foreign policy in this administration, that Venn overlap is getting smaller and smaller and smaller it's every day. yeah. Uh, Tom Nichols, I really appreciate you joining me to talk through this uh, yet another interesting staffing dilemma for the president. We'll have to watch and see what happens over at the U.N. Uh, I appreciate you coming on. Thanks for having me, Essie. Bye bye. Thanks. That's it for Weekend Warriors. We'll talk to you next time.